0: Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I will be reading verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In my opening words this morning, I I want to be kind of straightforward and just say our world is filled with confusion and dissatisfaction, which has led to complete chaos and insanity. As you can tell, just by looking around. And it all begins somewhere. It begins in the human heart. It begins in the heart, mind, and soul. It begins with human rebellion. When our hearts, minds, and souls... Are not turned toward God, everything which He has given us, even those things we were meant to enjoy, will be twisted and destroyed. And what is worse is when we convince ourselves that what we are doing is right. Well, this is what we see in our text this morning. Uh, Jesus has left Capernaum and traveled to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And as he has done throughout this letter, as was his custom, as a rabbi, he taught them. Then he is interrupted again by the Pharisees who came up and sought to test him. Uh, They want to discredit him in public so that the people around him would stop following him. And they understood that he was quite an extremist. So they sought to test him the way Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. How? By mishandling scripture. They asked him a question, which they already knew the answer to. But they wanted to see if he would contradict their interpretation of the law of Moses with His extremism. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, This is one of those questions that every pastor and every Christian must wrestle with, especially in complicated situations. But that was not the reason why they asked this question. The reason why they asked this question was, first... They wanted him in trouble in the same way as John the Baptist was who called Herod out for his adultery for taking his brother's wife. He was killed because he didn't budge on the law of God. So imagine if Jesus were to give that sort of response. And secondly, they were also seeking for permission. They were seeking for permission. I've heard this phrase, and unfortunately, I've heard this phrase even from Christians. It is easier to ask for forgiveness than to seek permission. You see, that is the mind of a Pharisee. That is the mind of a Pharisee. Uh, think of all the times that people ask questions about the Bible only to give themselves permission to do whatever they want to do. So Jesus does what we ought to do in those type of situations. He directs their minds back to the Word of God. He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus asked, What did Moses command And they responded with what Moses allowed. Notice the difference. And notice how they didn't get specific. It was a very vague answer. The question is, under what circumstance did he allow it? If you go back to the scripture that they are referencing, it is the only place in the Old Testament where Moses that lays out the circumstances that are allowed for a divorce. It is the only place. It is found in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says that when a man takes a wife and marries her, and if he has found some indecency in her, he can write her a certificate of divorce. Now, the question that the Jews struggled with over the centuries was, well, What is considered to be indecent? What is indecency? Well, normally we would think of indecency as being uh, promiscuous uh, behavior or having the qualities of a prostitute, having an adulterous nature. But by this time, most Jewish leaders and teachers had a very loose view of marriage. And a wide and broad definition of what it means to be indecent. Over the centuries, the rabbis have given acceptable circumstances for divorce in what is considered as indecent in a wife. Now listen to this. They said if a man finds a woman who is more attractive than his wife, he can divorce her. He can divorce her if she behaves badly or if she refuses to submit or get this, if she can't cook. (laughs) Now, I don't want any of the men in this congregation to call me one day with a problem saying, hey pastor, my wife hasn't been all that good of a cook lately. Is that grounds for divorce? I think you already know my answer. Now, you might be thinking, well, that just sounds silly. But believe it or not, this is some of the silly reasons people today get divorces. Now, what Moses wrote about divorce was not meant to be the norm. It was meant as a provision, not a command. Now, there was a command in Deuteronomy 24, but it came after... He mentions divorce. And it is in regard to remarriage. If she goes and marries someone else and the new husband divorces her or dies, the former husband shall not take her back after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And they missed this. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I think they either forgot that or they wanted to get around that. Moses was putting up a barrier so that men could not sin as they please. He was actually making it more difficult to get a divorce. He wasn't making it easy. He wasn't giving them permission for divorce. See, but the Pharisees... Twisted the word of God to make this barrier to divorce as a license to sin and to make it easier to divorce. They wanted to test the limits and they wanted to know where the line was so they would have permission to walk up to that line. They wanted an excuse and permission to sin. Sound familiar? So Jesus was saying, yes, he allowed for divorce. But there is more to it than that. He tried to put limits on sin so that we may honor our solemn vows. Because marriage is a covenant. It's not just getting together for a good time and once it's over we can just split. They had forgotten that. Most of us today have forgotten that. See, this just proves the point that the Pharisees weren't sticklers for the law. They weren't strict with the law. Now, there's this idea out there that the Pharisees were strict when it comes to the law. And Jesus was this easygoing hippie or, or a rebel who comes to defend sinners against those who try to jam the law of God down their throats. But that is far from the truth. It is the exact opposite. See, Jesus upheld the law. In fact, if anything, he raised the standards of the law. Also, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And later, he would call us to fulfill the law in a way that people would call as strict, radical, or extreme. Yes, the Pharisees were strict, but they were strict when it suited them. They were strict with the law when it benefited them. They were strict with the interpretation of the law of God that they liked or preferred. They were strict with obeying the law of God according to the rabbis. Because with the rabbis, they can get off the hook. They just flip through a book and say, "Hey, Rabbi so and so said I have grounds for divorce. So, I have grounds for divorce." He's the scholar. But notice how Jesus just ignores all of their rabbinical writings and goes back to the word of God. And he says, "What did Moses, who wrote down the law of God, which are the very words of God, what did he command of you?" Go back to the Word. Make sure you are reading it in its entire context. Now, this doesn't mean we ignore our past teachers, but to confirm what they are saying is true, we are to go back to the Word. <clears throat> Notice what he does next he explains why Moses allowed divorce. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. It was because of their hardness of heart toward God. See, the reason anyone gets to the point of divorce is because of sin. It is because of sin that Moses allowed divorce. But Christ has come to free us from the bondage of sin. And the Christian is one who has been given a new heart. And is marked by repentance from sin. If there is sin in the marriage that is never resolved or repented of. Then eventually God gives not only the guilty party over to sin. But he gives the entire marriage over to that sin. See divorce is a sign of judgment. It is a sign of judgment. It is not a good thing. It is not meant to be viewed as normal. And if we've gotten to the place where it is considered to be normal, then it is evidence that our hearts are far from God. It is something to grieve over. Because this is not the way God designed marriage to end. We see this uh, hardness of heart displayed today in the ways that the world regards marriage. Marriage is no longer important. It is treated as just a celebration or a thing you do when you grow up. And if you get uh, bored with it or if you don't get along anymore, you can just get a divorce. You can even have a divorce party. But before we blame the world and say that the world has destroyed marriage, we should ask ourselves how has the church regarded marriage? Is it important to us? But this is just a reflection or evidence of where the heart is as it is not directed toward God. This is evidence. That the heart of the person is hardened against God and his ways. It means we have no regard for God and he has no say in our lives. Now notice how Jesus responds to their hardness of heart. Instead of getting into a long dialogue about divorce and what is lawful or unlawful. He begins to tell them not what divorce is about. But what marriage is about. He speaks positively. We see here through Jesus' words that first, marriage is part of God's original plan for creation. Secondly, marriage demonstrates the love of God for his people as they become one. And thirdly, marriage is permanent. So first notice, where does Jesus ground marriage? He doesn't go to the law of God given to Moses at Mount Sinai. But he goes to Moses' earlier writings. Uh, This is what he was referring to when he said, What did Moses command you? It was when the law was first established, not in Mount Sinai, but at the beginning of creation. He takes them way back to Genesis. In God's original plan for creation before sin. He says, but from the beginning of creation. Because marriage is founded in creation. Not just the law of God. It is founded in creation. See, the law of God is usually negative. Right? You shall not do such and such. So, there is no express law that says you shall get married. Right? But there's a negative. You shall not commit adultery. See, marriage was founded before sin entered the world. And it wasn't founded as a remedy for our lust, as some have suggested. Marriage is not here just to suit your lusts. In fact, it is the most Ancient institution on the planet shared by all people. Christians are not the only ones who get married. Uh, People from all backgrounds get married, even if it's for the wrong reasons. And you often hear the criticism that says, there's no law that says we should get married. Why can't we just live together? Well, because it is assumed. It is assumed in nature. Marriage is assumed in God's creation. You see, marriage is natural. It was founded in creation. It is built into the natural order of things. This is the way God intended things to be from the beginning. So Christ here is addressing the effects of sin on marriage because He has come to undo those effects. And He calls Christians as those who are to reflect that undoing of sin by living in faithful marriages as it was meant to be. And that is why any sexual relationship outside of marriage between a man and a woman is considered to be sin, including cohabitation. It is unnatural. It twists nature. It goes against the natural order that God has set up. That is why there is so much shame that comes with extramarital affairs. And if you're not ashamed, then you're in danger of becoming like these Pharisees hardened by their sin. That's why Paul says that if you cannot exercise self-control, then you should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But if you can control yourself, then you can remain single. Remember, there's no law that says you have to get married. If you can remain single and control yourself, then you can remain single. That's more time to serve the Lord. Marriage is not a sacrament. And it doesn't make you more spiritually mature than the one who is single. Or vice versa. Marriage is not for everyone. What Jesus is trying to speak to here. Is after God created all things and instituted marriage. Men fell into sin. Which twisted nature. And so marriage has now become twisted. And so for many it has become a burden rather than something that God intended to be for our good and for his glory. It was sin and the hardness of heart that has brought us to the place where we are today and where the Pharisees were back then. But their problem was not just that they misunderstood marriage, but their problem was they were without God. They were without God. Marriage is the way it is today in our culture because the culture is without God. Because marriage is about God. It's not about you and your spouse. It's not just about making good decisions in life that will benefit you. It's not just about building a good society, though marriage is good for society. Marriage begins with God. It is a public covenant that you make between you, your spouse, some witnesses, and God. And it is to be lived in the presence of God. The first words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God. That is where Jesus goes with the argument. They had their mind. Stuck on the law and uh, the rabbis who misinterpreted the law and they forgot about the God of the law. He redirects their minds to God. So let us get this idea out of our minds that if Jesus was around today, he would be all inclusive. No, he affirmed what the Old Testament teaches. He affirmed the word of God. He lays out God's intentions from the beginning when he says, God made them male and female. Notice he didn't say we have a choice whether or not we want to be male or female. God made them male and female. That that is why when we give humans the power that only belongs to God to decide who he or she is to become Male or female, it is so unnatural and it is a direct assault on God. God made us the way we are. Even if we were born with some deformity. Even if we were born with a mental illness. Which we should address sympathetically. But God is the creator of the male and the female. He gave us our identity. And to say that Jesus never addresses homosexuality. Is a lie. He says it here. By omission. He addresses it. Right here. He lays it out. The way it is supposed to be. And any other way. Is a distortion. Of God's creation. God made them male and female. Distinct. And for the purpose of marriage. Two counterparts. That fit perfectly together. And they were meant to be a display of who God is. Of who God is. Because they were both made in His image. Why? Because secondly, there was a reason behind marriage before the fall. Since they were made in God's image... They were to reflect God and reflect the love that God has for his people. Jesus gives us the natural order of things by directly quoting Genesis 2, verse 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He is, as the old saying says, he is to leave and to cleave. If you come from a close-knit family like I come from, or if you come from a, a small town, that may be hard to do. But it is vital for a healthy marriage. You are to leave and to cleave. Because in a marriage, you have a closer relationship than any other relationship. And it takes priority over all others, humanly speaking. It is so close that he says, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that expresses itself in ways that I don't want to describe here, and I'll leave it to you. But God has given us marriage to love, to procreate, and to enjoy the benefits of physical in- intimacy, which reflect the intimacy we have with God. Now, we will never... Connect the two in our minds. But the enjoyment that we have between husband and wife is a reflection of the intimacy that will be enjoyed when God returns in Christ Jesus. That's why it is called the consummation. When He returns, we will enjoy God fully. We enjoy Him now, we're called to enjoy Him now. But at that moment, we will enjoy Him fully. And that physical intimacy which we have between husband and wife reflects who He is. And there are many implications of this, such as having a complete unity of mind and aligning all of our goals to glorify God, because you now operate as one unit. You are two distinct people, yet you have been joined as one flesh. So this even has, as I mentioned, implications in how we use our bodies. Because married couples are called to serve one another and submit their bodies to one another because you are now one flesh. That means your bodies are for no one else. Therefore, no one else. So in marriage, there is no my body, my choice. There is none of that. No, it is not your body. First, your body belongs to God. Period. Christian, non-Christian. Your body belongs to God. For Christians, it is because you have been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, your body belongs to your spouse. And your spouse's body belongs to you. It is not your body. Now, this does not mean that husbands are allowed to do whatever they want with their wives or vice versa. Uh, Yes, wives are called to submit to and respect their husbands. But notice what Paul says In his letter to the Ephesians. Because we have suffered in our culture over the centuries. To a false version of the patriarchy. I believe in patriarchy. I believe the man is the head of the household. Or the head of his wife. But it it has expressed itself in the wrong ways. That the man can go out. Do as he pleases while the wife stays at home. He can go off and sin as he pleases and when he comes home he can make demands and the wife is just supposed to submit. That is not biblical. Whatsoever. That is not biblical. But listen to what he says to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now who has lived up to the standard? none of us. This should bring conviction to all of us. But Paul here is trying to show us that marriage is a display of the gospel. It is a display of the way Christ loves His church. And if any husband comes to me and asks me that he needs marital counseling, I'll ask him this question. Are you seeking to fulfill this? It begins with you. Being the head means, not that you make demands... But it means you have a greater responsibility to serve. And if you're not quietly and patiently doing this. Then go back to the drawing board. Because this is what it means to be one flesh. And marriage is a demonstration of the love that God has for his people. Consider the love of God as he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and rise from the dead so that one day we would be united Him and become one. That is the picture of the union that a husband and a wife now share. It exists. Once you get married and you make those vows, you're in union with your wife. So whatever you do with your body, with your mind, you're sharing with your husband or wife. Whatever you do to your husband or wife's body, you're doing to your own. Even if you neglect it, you're neglecting your own nourishment. Thirdly, and lastly, this just proves that marriage is permanent. Just like you cannot separate God's people from God or the church from Christ, you cannot separate this one flesh union. It is meant to demonstrate that marriage is permanent and indivisible, just like a body, or it will die. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Then he says the famous line we hear at every wedding, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Remember, marriage begins with God. It begins with His sovereign plan to bring two people of the opposite sex together. Marriage was not man's idea or invention. We're not that smart. We weren't brought together by choice. God did it. So it cannot be up to man to decide when or how the two are to separate. Since God joined a couple together, who is man to make rash decisions regarding divorce? Who is man to try to separate something God has brought together? There would be dire consequences and man would have to be put in his place. And this is not just speaking about a man who is trying to come in between your marriage. He is speaking of humanly ways of thinking, looking for any old excuse to get a divorce, looking for permission like the Pharisees. Because as we know, people get divorced for the silliest and most absurd reasons. I want to see the world. He or she is holding me down from finding my true self. I need something new or exciting. Or or the famous, we're just not in love anymore. Whatever that means. Well, we know what it means. It means you're not in lust anymore. And you've passed the honeymoon stage. And reality has set in. You have two sinners living under the same roof. And if you choose to procreate and multiply, there becomes more than two sinners under the same roof. So now you have to deal with not only your spouse's sins, but the sins of your children. And not only that, your own sins. That's why I say a successful marriage can only come from the hand of God and by the grace of God. It is only by the grace of God. It is not an effort that we put in. It is not found in a how-to book, but it is by grace. By grace. But you see, the Pharisees were hardened and they were turned inward. They only cared for themselves. Marriage was about themselves. But marriage is not about you. Once we make marriage all about me and what I can get out of it, it will be over soon enough. In marriage, your life is no longer your own. You belong to someone else. You no longer live under your parents as guardians. That is why the wife takes on a new name. This is a picture of God's people who now belong to Christ. You were once under the law as a guardian, but now you have been wed to Christ. You have His name on you, and He is responsible to love, defend, to serve, and protect you, and you are responsible to obey Him. Marriage is a visual display of the gospel. Let us not forget that. When we live in a hostile world, As we find Jesus speaking to his disciples privately in the house, they asked him about this matter of divorce. In the broader context, he has been teaching them about the true standards of discipleship, which would include the seriousness of sin, the reality of hell, and the need to repent. From the Pharisees' mindset, they have been trying to get away with sin. So he teaches his disciples the true standards of marriage and when divorce is okay. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now that's new. That's new. In the Jewish culture at the time, it is unheard of for a man to commit adultery against his wife. It was an extreme version of patriarchy. Usually it is. That the man commits adultery against the husband of the woman that he is with. And the woman commits adultery against her husband. And then he says, and if she divorces her husband, that's a new one too. Women weren't allowed to divorce their husbands. But here he implies that they have a right to. That they have a right to. And that it goes both ways. That if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, there are justifiable reasons to get divorced that is mentioned elsewhere, such as adultery, abandonment, abuse. But that is not what he is trying to address here. He was trying to address the mindset that has such a low view of marriage. He is saying, marriage is serious in the eyes of God, and it is for life. Don't try to find permission for divorce. That just shows where your heart is. Because if you get divorced, it doesn't mean you have been freed from the obligations from your quote-unquote former spouse. Even after the divorce, you are still bound to that person for life. So in other words, your new spouse doesn't count. Doesn't count. You can sign all the papers you want. In God's eyes, you're still married to that person you divorced. Because when you got married that first time as a believer, the two of you became one flesh and will be treated as one flesh. If you sin against your spouse, you sin against your own body and God, So there is a need to repent. So ultimately, what we can learn from this is that the Pharisees and every generation known to man were really trying to get away with sinning against God. They were trying to get away with sinning against God, which is a reflection of our heart God has designed this created order in a certain way yet we sin. He has shown us grace and the way we ought to live. And we ought to live in our relationships, especially our marriages, in a way that Christ has shown us. Christ died for his bride. That is the good news. That's what we proclaim as the gospel. So we should live from here on out as those who have been bought with a price and sin no longer has dominion over us. Can we save ourselves that is how we live? Well, we should look at our marriages and see if we're reflecting God and His gospel.